Good evening and welcome to our midweek Bible study at Lost River Church of Christ. As we continue our way through the Ten Commandments, tonight we come to the Seventh Commandment, which is very plainly stated, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. The word adultery uh, primarily has to do with a particular kind of sexual immorality. So we can have a general classification of sexual immorality or sexual sin. And within that, there is the specific case of adultery, which technically means that a person who is married having a sexual relationship with someone outside of that marriage relationship. So that is strictly speaking what is prohibited in this commandment. But as we've seen last week with the commandment against committing murder, there's an underlying principle. And here the principle perhaps would be of, of maintaining sexual purity, sexual integrity, and to do so from the time that we're children all the way throughout our adult lives. And the reality is that a person who doesn't grow up developing a sense of sexual purity and integrity will find it far more difficult to adhere to this commandment as an adult married person than someone who has learned the discipline from their earliest years of practicing sexual restraint. So regardless of what age you are or what stage of life you're in, whether a child, whether an adolescent, whether a young adult who's still unmarried, a newlywed, someone who's been married 10, 20, 30 years. In every case, there's something in this principle and this prohibition that applies to you. All of us should take our sexuality seriously and our sexual purity should be highly valued. So as we get into the study, I want to go back to the beginning, as we seemingly, seemingly so often do, to get our fundamental uh, foundational bearings, if you will. Uh, in Genesis 2, verses 20 and 21, we see the creation of, of marriage and the institution of the sexual relationship between male and female. It says that when Adam had had all the animals paraded before him, and he had given names to all of them. It was sort of an interesting thing. Some of you have probably heard me do this before, but you've got the hippopotamus going by and he says, there's a hippopotamus and the giraffe goes by and that's a giraffe. And here comes a kangaroo bouncing along and that's a kangaroo. And then at the end of all of that, um, he realized that for each of these animals, there was a suitable companion, male and female. And he began to notice that there was none for him. So a hippopotamus is a pretty neat animal, but it's not exactly Adam's type. And so he, with this heightened sense of awareness that he didn't have a companion for him, it says that the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. I don't want to get too distracted here, but this is sort of a description of a death-like sleep. And um, while he is in this anesthetized state, if you will, God performs the first surgery and he takes one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. So from Adam's side as he slept, God pulled the material from which he fashioned the woman. This is kind of interesting because when he made man, he made him out of the dirt. But when he made the woman, he made him from the man's side suitable to be his companion. So there's a suitableness 
for companionship that exists between man and woman that God established from beginning. And there's something intimate and something beautiful about her being taken from his side to be his companion. And also this very concept that he went into this death-like slumber. And when he awoke from it, God had done something marvelous. He had taken his very good creation and found a way to make it even better. And it's almost like Adam has to go through this death-like experience and suffer as a sin, in a sense, um, the, the, the tearing of his side in order for his bride to come into creation. And I think there's a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel there in which Jesus dies literally on the cross. His side is pierced and blood and water flow out. And from that, God fashions for Jesus, the bride, the church. And uh, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful analogy there. But there's uh, a reason I bring that up is because there's an intimacy that it comes in marriage that God intended to reflect an intimacy between Christ and his people that we're fashioned from his bleeding side, just as Eve was fashioned from Adam's bleeding side to be near to him, to be companion to him, to be partner with him in the work of spreading the gospel throughout the world, just as Eve was Adam's companion and co-worker in filling the earth and uh, being uh, fruitful and, and multiplying and subduing it. And so I think even in the earliest stages of the Bible, we see these beautiful analogies between what the gospel would ultimately bring to pass and what was taking place here. But when this process, this surgery was finished and Eve was formed and Adam awakes, it says that when Adam wakes up from this and she's brought to him, that Adam created the first poetry in, in, in history. Here's what he said. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she's not like a hippopotamus or a giraffe or kangaroo. She's like me. And she's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So again, this idea of a, a suitableness, a companionship, a likeness with a sufficient difference to make them a proper Hair. Now, I just want to quickly add, because we're dealing with the matters of sexual propriety, that very early in the Bible, we see the idea of male and female as God's design, God's idea. And that uh, the sexuality that would flow out of that is a part of God's design. And it echoes back to Genesis chapter 1, where he makes daytime and nighttime where he makes dry land and ocean where there's these binary pairings of two things that come together to make a whole. And in a sense, that's what we see taking place with humanity as well. And it's one of the reasons why I'm opposed to the concept of homosexual connections because they don't fit. It isn't fitting. It isn't appropriate. And it doesn't take two things that are in enough ways alike to make them suitable, but at the same time, different enough to make them truly compatible. Interlocking pairs, just as day and night are. 
And so man and woman, woman made from man to be his suitable companion. And so Adam is thrilled by what God has, has produced from his sacrifice on his side. And then he makes this commentary, whether this is Adam or whether this is the writer of Genesis, I'm not sure. But he says that this reason, this is the reason or the foundational reason why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So in marriage, there is a leaving and a cleaving, a departure from a pre-existing relationship of one's home of origin and a uniting of oneself with his wife or with her husband to form a new bond, a new unit. And it's two becoming one. Um, it's a beautiful image that God uh, has, has given us here and one that is extremely foundational to society as a whole. Society needs to do whatever it takes to promote and protect the sanctity of the home, of the family. And to the degree that it does so, societies tend to prosper. And when you find a culture that does not honor and protect the sanctity of marriage, you find that that whole culture begins to unravel and it uh, has a very um, degenerative effect when it's not honored as it should be. So we want to uh, get our bearings again here from Genesis 2 that marriage, husband and wife, man and woman coming together to form a lifelong unit. For this reason, they become one flesh. And this is a lifelong union that God establishes, that God creates. This is a God-ordained union that has to be protected. And we also have this final comment that Adam and Eve were uh, both naked in the garden and they, they felt no shame. Why I want to emphasize that is because it is, in, it is an indicator of complete intimacy between the two. There's no barrier between them. They're open with one another, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. There's a complete connectedness between the two. And that describes the ideal state that God wants a married couple to be in. Now, unfortunately, because of sin, we know that there is a wedge driven both between God and man and also between, between people and including husband and wife. And in the story that follows, if you don't read your Bible, you should read your Bible because it describes what happens when sin enters a relationship and how this couple who felt no shame suddenly become filled with shame and begin to accuse one another. And so the problems of society begin to creep in. And, and that's a, a helpful way for us to begin our, our study. Now, in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, the Bible says that marriage, this institution created by God in the beginning and that we're prohibited from violating in Exodus 20, is something that's honorable among all. That is, we should hold marriage in honor. Everyone, all, that includes you and me, should honor marriage. That means you should honor your marriage if, you're, if you are married. If you're a single person, you should honor the marriages of others. You don't try to get between a husband and wife. If you're a, a man, you don't try to sleep with another man's wife. If you're a woman, you do not try to wedge your way between another woman and, and her husband. You honor marriage and all of us should do that. And it should be held in the highest of a state because as I said before, it's the fundamental unit of society. And when it crumbles, everything falls apart in the aftermath. 
And so not only is marriage honorable, but he says the bed is undefiled. Now the word undefiled here means that the sexual activity, the sexual union that takes place between husband and wife in marriage, in their marriage bed, is something that is pure. That word undefiled may at first sound to us like it carries a connotation of, well, it's not too defiled. It's not too bad. It's not too dirty. But that's, that's not the idea at all. In fact, this same word undefiled is used elsewhere in the book of Hebrews to describe the high priesthood of Jesus. He's a priest who's undefiled. That doesn't mean that Jesus is only a little bit dirty, but it, he's completely free of sin and defilement, totally pure. Peter uses the same word to describe our inheritance in heaven being a place that is undefiled. And so in the same way that Jesus' priesthood is undefiled, that heaven is undefiled, marriage bed is undefiled. That means a husband and wife should approach one another in their sexual relationship with the concept that this is totally pure and good in God's sight. It's a blessing from Him, and in no way is it a polluted or degrading thing. It also means that we want to be very careful not to bring into our marriage bed some, something that is defiled. And we do that when we adulterate, when we commit adultery, when we go apart from our marriage partner to fulfill our sexual desires, we're defiling our own marriage bed. And so God places a high wall, if you will, around sexual purity around our human sexuality and the marriage relationship in particular. Not because God is somehow embarrassed by that or that it's somehow a tainted thing. He puts a high wall of protection around it because what's inside is so pure and so valuable to God. You know, you build security systems uh, in a building because what's inside the building is valuable to you. And God builds security around sexuality because what's inside of it is valuable to Him. And when we degrade it and say, well, it's just a physical act, it's, it's no big deal, then we're degrading the value of it. We're, we're becoming sexual vandals. And that describes our culture today. It's sexual vandalism that's taking place because we've taken sex as from being something sacred that God has given us that's pure and good and said it's common and it's for common use. Any, anybody who wants to can hook up with anybody they want to anytime and who's, who's to say anything about that? Well, God has something to say about it because God knows something that we've forgotten and that is that sex is not just some random physical act with no spiritual connection or meaning. And when we adulterize and defile our marriage beds, we are dishonoring an institution that is at the very heart what holds our society together. And so God prohibits that we commit adultery. Jesus also, as we saw last week in the Sermon on the Mount, addresses the same issue, and He addresses it the same way that He did last week with murder. Remember how he said, if it's wrong to commit murder with your hand, then it's wrong to commit it in your heart with anger. The same thing is true with lust in the heart. If it's wrong to commit adultery with your body, 
it's also wrong to think about it and dwell upon it in your mind and in your heart. Here's the way he puts it. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Again, we know that that's true. We just studied it. But I say to you, so Jesus is going to level up or elevate what Moses required. He said, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this goes contrary to what you hear so many people say uh, in our day and time. You know, it's okay to look as long as I don't touch. Or I can make use of pornography, uh, as so many people do, including Christian people do. And, you know, that, that's not a violation of this. Well, Jesus says that it is. That, that to lust after people, to allow this kind of thing to just run rampant in our imaginations, is, is uh, to emotionally and mentally do what God clearly prohibits physically. If it's wrong in the physical act, then we must try to uh, also put away from us that which is con conducted in us emotionally and mentally. And Jesus is so severe about this and urges us about this by using this extreme language. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin because of your lustful looking, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, I don't think Jesus is talking about um, literal physical mutilation, that you should blind yourself if you struggle with lust. But what he is using is an exaggerated form of speech in order to make his point very clear. Because sometimes cutting off things that we have grown accustomed to doing, lusting, viewing pornography, having impure thoughts about other people is something that becomes so ingrained in such a part of us that it, it's, it's like performing an operation in which we're literally ripping a part of our being away from us and separating it from us. Anyone who's been addicted to pornography and repents of that sin describes it as being like tearing something away from them. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, The Great Divorce, describes someone who had become addicted to lust and adultery and sexual immorality as having this extra appendage that had been attached to their body. And the only way that they could uh, ultimately be delivered from it is to just simply rip and tear that apart and cast it aside. And the reality is, as Lewis points out in that, in that story, and so many people have experienced in their life, you can overcome this. You are not destined to be in bondage to the corrupting power of lust in your life. You can be a sexually pure person. Other people are, and you can be too. And Jesus alone has the power, I think, ultimately to deliver us from that. But we do so in connection with our own. He does so in connection with our own effort. It's not just that you do it on your own. You're looking to Jesus. You're following Jesus. And he's showing you how to love him more than anything else. 
and how to how to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And as you as you do that, you uh, you, you find the power to overcome this temptation. And if you're struggling with that, there are ways and people who are willing to help and you can contact us and we'd be delighted to help you in that regard. But, you know, it, it's no matter how painful and difficult it is for you to leave a relationship with another person that you're involved with that you shouldn't be or to eliminate lust and, and these kinds of unrighteous desires from your life. It may feel like you're plucking part of your physical body and separating it from yourself. It's better that than the alternative. It's better that than the alternative. So let's wrap up our study tonight by looking at just a, a couple of uh, responses to a question that I've had people ask me before. I've literally had this asked. The, the, the affirmation is it's just a casual physical act. You know, again, as I said last week, if, if you just look at human nature as a biological product of evolution and there's no reason why we're here, well, then I, I think that this kind of makes sense to you. It's just a casual physical act. And as long as you're careful, taking necessary precautions to prevent an unwanted pregnancy or to prevent the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases, you know, and, and nobody's forced into this, nobody gets hurt, then what's the big deal? Well, isn't it true that you know instinctively and deep within you that there is something different about your sexuality than other physical functions that you perform in your life? Why is it, for instance, when someone is sexually abused as a child that that trauma stays with them throughout their life? Why don't you come up to someone who has been sexually victimized in their childhood and say, hey, just a physical act, just, you know, dirty old man touched you inappropriately. What's the big deal? Just get over it. No one would be so callous just to say that because we know that somewhere within us, the, our sexuality runs deep. It runs to the core of who we are. The same thing would go with other forms of sexual abuse that people might experience in their adult life. And how traumatic that is because sexuality is different. And I'll tell you that personally, when people have come to me through the years with issues that they need counseling and help with, nothing runs as deep in people's hearts and their lives and their conscience as sexual issues from their past. It's not just a physical act. There's something much deeper that God has woven into the fabric of our being that's connected with our sexuality. And the problem is when you begin to treat it as a casual thing, somebody, including you, will always get hurt. And so here's two responses that I would make to that question. First, no activity that has the potential to create human life could ever be classified as casual. Think about that. It is through sexual activity that human beings come into existence with an eternal soul. That could never be a casual act, even if you took the precautions that hopefully would prevent an unwanted pregnancy. How could the act itself that is connected with the creation of a human soul ever be thought of as something that's casual? And secondly, sexual purity 
paves the way for relational intimacy. And the truth is that what we saw with Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and unashamed, is the desire that almost every human being has for their life. To be able to be open, transparent, and intimate with another human being without having the fears and the worries and the doubts that come from tracking in previous relationships and sexual indiscretions that are going on within the relationship or outside of my marriage, that destroys intimacy. If you want to have the intimacy that we all crave and desire, then sexual purity is the thing that paves the way to that kind of sexual intimacy. I want to say one final thing to those who have already messed up in this area. You've already committed sexual sin or you're already struggling with a pornography addiction. Again, you don't have to live that way. And don't listen to the devil, your old master who lies to you and tells you that you've got to do what he says. There is another way and there is a way out and there is forgiveness. And maybe part of the way of breaking through the addiction that sexual temptation has on you is by coming to terms with the power of Christ's death and his blood to forgive you of your sin. This is not an unforgivable sin. And you can be restored, you can be made whole through the gospel, through his forgiveness for you. You may even feel like because of your sexual history that nobody would want you. Well, Jesus wants you. And Jesus can make you whole. Jesus can forgive you and Jesus can make you pure. And so if you're not a Christian, this is just one more reason why you should seriously consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once more, if we can help you with that, we stand ready to do so. Just reach out to us. Contact us at office at lostriverchurch.org and we'll do whatever we can to help you find the healing and the forgiveness that you need to live the sexually pure life and find the intimacy that you were created to experience. Let's close again with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, how good you are to us. You've made us in such an awesome way and how male and female both, we reflect your glory into the world. And Father, we thank you for the plan that you had from the beginning for man and woman to leave their homes of origin, to establish new and distinct families in this world and through that to populate the world. And we thank you for the intimacy that it can exist in marriage, an intimacy that somehow mirrors our intimacy with you through Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help restore the institution of marriage in our land and do that by restoring the integrity of marriage within the church, that every Christian man listening to this lesson would begin to appreciate the importance of sexual purity. And every Christian woman would, would likewise do the same. And that through that, we could be salt in the earth and lights in the world. And Father, we pray that you will bless us with this and with every other good thing that only you can provide. Because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.